How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean Foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away. Throw our last Crunch Berry. No! No one steals my Crunch Berries. I think you mean my Crunch Berries. Choose your own Crunch Venture with Captain Crunch. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. And I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, it's kind of a running joke that every week I like sincerely say that it's a packed show, but today was kind of a whole other level. And so yeah. I am so <laughs> excited to get to record this conversation with you because, wow. Yeah, we're in another dimension now. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in DC right now. You're at the heart of the matter. Are you getting dinner with John Bolton tonight? Is that accurate? Well, you know, he was texting me to tell me that he resigned instead of being fired. Um, Mm. But that's about it. (laughs) An important distinction. So, uh, of course, we're going to cover John Bolton's firing. We're going to talk about Trump's sleepover party with the Taliban at Camp David. We'll talk about some reports that the U.S. had to extract a spy out of Russia who had been put at risk. Some Brexit updates, some Hong Kong updates. Uh, The Israeli elections are fast approaching and there's a lot happening there including baby Jared Kushner becoming the Middle East peace envoy. Mm. So we'll unpack that brilliant idea. Some Iran updates, uh, Robert Mugabe's death. And then we'll go to my conversation with Senator and presidential candidate Michael Bennett. And finally, Mm. at the end of the episode, uh, this is coming out on 9-11, and I was hoping to reflect on the 18 years since that awful day. And then, moreover, some of the national security decisions and, frankly, mistakes that have been made and what maybe we can learn from them, because I think that's an important reflection, too. So, like I said, pack show, buddy. Yeah. Buckle up, worldos. Quick housekeeping note. So... There are really important elections coming up in Virginia this November. We can actually take control of Virginia's state legislature by flipping just a few seats, which would be unbelievably important right before the next round of congressional redistricting and also important for you know Virginia legislative reasons. So in other words, we have the chance to undo some of the terrible Republican gerrymandering and literally redraw the maps. Crooked Media, we've been working with our friends at Data for Progress to target and raise money for 14 key races in Virginia where Democrats have the best chance of winning and where we figured out that your dollars will go the furthest. So we're about halfway towards our fundraising goal. If folks who are listening want to help and fight back against gerrymandering and support some great candidates in Virginia, go to votesaveamerica.com slash jerry, spelled G-E-R-R-Y. Why? That's votesaveamerica.com slash Jerry. If you chip in five bucks, like for a state level race like this, it can go a really long way. So that's all I got. All right, let's talk about the news. First topic I got, Ben, is uh, bye bye John Bolton. So again, we do a lot of dark, depressing news here on Pod Save the World. This first topic is as good as it gets. On Tuesday, President Trump tweeted that he informed his national security advisor, John Bolton, that his services were no longer needed. And he added in the tweets that he disagreed with many of Bolton's suggestions. Trump was immediately fact-checked, as we are all used to having happened. But in this case, he was fact-checked by John Bolton himself, who tweeted that I offered to resign last night and President Trump said, let's talk about it tomorrow. So that was weird. Bolton was also texting Fox and Friends hosts to correct the record and say you resigned. You alluded to this earlier. Weirdly, Bolton was supposed to join Mike Pompeo at a White House briefing just hours after all this went down. So just stepping back here, like, 
I feel like I can say pretty unequivocally that the world is a safer place with John Bolton gone. He is a right-wing ideologue. He's been known to cook intelligence and leak and run a terrible policy process. But we should also be honest that a lot of damage has been done. Bolton escalated tensions with Iran. He pulled us out of arms control treaties. He forced this dumb showdown with Venezuela that has really gone nowhere. The list really, it goes on and on. But you know what, Ben? Today... I'm going to be a little bit happy that this creep is gone. And I guess someone I've never heard of named Charlie Cooperman is now the acting national security advisor. Uh, What are you doing to celebrate Bolton Independence Day, Ben? Well, you know, in perhaps the single best place to be when this news broke, I was in Ilhan Omar's office meeting with her, friend of the pod. Um, So that was my initial uh, celebration. I think, you know, you can breathe a sigh of some relief. Uh, Donald Trump is still the president, so it's it's moderated. But it's hard to overstate the danger that this man posed to the risk of war with Iran, the risk of war with Venezuela. I mean, he was just competent enough to be truly dangerous. I think you know, we should note he leaves kind of a wrecking ball legacy. You mm-hmm. know, when he came into that job. That's when the more belligerent elements of the Trump foreign policy really took off. So the abandonment of the Iran deal and this kind of ramp up to conflict with Iran, the abandonment of all the arms control agreements that you know you and I have discussed. It's been a hobby horse of Bolton's for some time. These bizarre videos that he would tape about the impending collapse of the Maduro government that never materialized. Uh, you know, the, obviously the adversarial approach to China that's escalated. You know, and basically, like this guy was using the fact that his kind of Fox News foreign policy had sufficient overlap with Trump's to really make the world a more dangerous place and to get us like to the brink of war. I mean, the you know Trump almost bombing Iran had John Bolton's fingerprints all over it, and it's clearly what he wanted. And you know, it, it we really are safer <laughs> with him gone, um, albeit not nearly out of the woods, uh, given who's still uh, president, given the fact that he knew how to work the instruments of the U.S. government, you know, to get his agenda done. And because he had a you know disinterested and incompetent president, he had a lot of you know running room to get things done. And, you know, so we're, we're unequivocally better off without him, although it does speak to the kind of chaos and dysfunction in U.S. national security that I don't even know who this person is who's now the National Security Advisor. Yeah. Nobody really knows who the Secretary of Defense is. He's a non-entity. You know, Mike Pompeo looms as this kind of dominant figure, and, th- and that doesn't make me feel particularly good. Yeah, I mean, right. Pompeo is definitely ascendant. So real quick on Bolton. So, you know, there's been some reporting in the hours since this firing. The Washington Post reported that Trump has been frustrated with Bolton for a long time. They said that Bolton and Mike Pompeo's relationship has soured. But it sounds like the real deal breaker was that recently Bolton has refused to go on television to defend Trump's foreign policy positions like on Russia or on Afghanistan. Uh, Maggie Haberman over the New York Times reported that Bolton had canceled uh, appearances on Sunday shows. So, you know, Trump wasn't getting what you really want out of a national security advisor, which is a, a good cable surrogate. surrogate. you got to be yeah. fucking kidding me. But like, you know, like Mike Pompeo has made this reputation for himself as a more reasonable person. He's a total right-wing ideologue. I hate that everyone's talking about him possibly getting elected to the Senate in Kansas. Everything he has touched in that White House has turned to shit. He might put a 
you know, less obnoxious, less mustached face on things when he goes on TV to defend it. But like he's just as much a hardliner yeah. on Iran, for example, as Bolton. Maybe it does sound like he was in favor of these peace talks with the Taliban, which we'll get to in a second. And, you know, so it, it's a net benefit, I guess, with Bolton gone. But Pompeo still is scary. Yeah. I mean, the, the one final word on Bolton. I mean, th- this man could not have a more destructive legacy, right? Uh, one of the chief proponents of the Iraq war in the Bush administration you know, this belligerence to arms control over decades, obviously the damage that he's done in the Trump administration. It seems to me, Tommy, like apart from the lack of willingness to be a TV surrogate, not as if John Bolton was a particularly great TV surrogate, but put that aside, Mm -hmm. they're gearing up for uh, the UN General Assembly meetings. And, you know, the rumor out there is that, you know, on the one hand, uh, Trump seems to really want a meeting with the Iranians. And, you know, Pompeo even today in this press event continually kept saying that Trump you know was willing to meet. I mean, they seem to be chasing the Iranians for a meeting because the Iranians haven't said that they want to meet. That's obviously something that, that Bolton would have objected to. At the same time, the French are trying to have uh, the UN be a venue to kind of return to some Iran deal type situation where... You know, the Iranians are kind of returning to what they were already doing, which is complying with the Iran deal before Trump pulled out in exchange for some you know, relief from sanctions, also known as <laughs> Obama's Iran deal. Um, mm-hmm. But it speaks to the kind of utter incoherence of the Trump foreign policy that they basically created this crisis with Iran by pulling out of the Iran deal and ramping up sanctions and belligerent rhetoric and threats. The Iranians responded by doing the same and resuming their nuclear program. And now, lo and behold, recognizing they have no options, they're trying to chase around the Iranians for a meeting, right? The utter incoherence of the policy that Trump pursued, that Bolton carried out, has led them to this dead end where Trump doesn't really feel like getting into the war that his policies were getting us into. But the only alternative is something like what Obama did, brokered by the Europeans who hated what Trump did and pulling out of the deal. And that's a great window into you know the worldview of, of people like Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump who want to have it both ways. They want to have all of the confrontation with Iran and the trolling of Obama. Uh, but then when they see the damage that's wrought, they're trying to climb out of that hole. And yep. so it's really not a, a high watermark here. No, not at all. Okay, let's talk about Afghanistan because I, I do suspect this was also a big point of contention between yeah. Trump and Bolton and, and Bolton and Pompeo. So we are uh, recording this on Tuesday, September 10th. It's going to go out on September 11th, which is the 18th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. The war in Afghanistan began shortly after. The Trump administration recently, over the last year or so, has been holding peace talks in an effort to end that war. But they hit a bit of a roadblock over the weekend in the form of some Trump tweets. On Saturday, Trump tweeted that he was planning to meet with Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, as well as members of the Taliban at Camp David this weekend to essentially ink a peace deal. He said he then canceled those talks via a follow-up tweet blaming a recent Taliban attack that killed a U.S. service member in Kabul. I should just say I don't buy that explanation at all. These peace talks have been going on for 10 months to a year. 16 Americans have been killed in combat in Afghanistan during that time. So uh, subsequent reporting suggests that Trump canceled the meeting because he wanted it to be framed as him 
bringing the parties together at Camp David to finalize a deal and being the great deal maker. He didn't want to be seen as announcing a deal that had already been worked out, even though his team had already briefed the thing to the press. So I guess, Ben, the, the in essence, he's perpetuating a war because he didn't like the rollout strategy for the the peace talks, which yeah. is great. Um, yeah. It's also clear that he could care less about the Afghan government. I mean, he's ready to force Ashraf Ghani to come to the U.S. to announce a deal that no one in Afghanistan likes. And now he's called it off in this high-profile way right before Afghanistan has elections on September 28th, which are now more likely to be targeted by the Taliban for attack. So I'll pause there. I mean, Ben, what the hell, man? Yeah, I mean, there's so much wrong with this. I mean, nothing wrong with diplomacy with the Taliban. But, I mean, first of all, you know, having them to Camp David the week of 9-11 just is so completely and utterly tone deaf to start with. Second, it seems like, again, as you mentioned, the, the Afghan government appears to be totally sidelined on this. This is a deal that should be about the future of Afghanistan. And, you know, it should be on Afghan soil and it should be with the, the Afghan government front and center. By us dealing with the Taliban, we're almost kind of elevating them us dealing with the Taliban without kind of the full buy-in of the Afghan government, it gives the appearance, you know, of us essentially recognizing the Taliban in some fashion as the interlocutor and not this government that we've been supporting. The, the deal that really needs to happen is between the Afghan government and the Taliban uh, about what the future of that country is. I'd also say to your point about the recklessness of Trump wanting to do this in the first place, he doesn't need to get in the room. You know, diplomacy can work without the right. president having to insert himself or herself, hopefully. And, you know, so you have this bizarre scenario where, you know, a deal was almost ready to be signed. And, and the only reason it's not happening is because Trump wanted this kind of bizarre photo op with the, the Taliban. Yeah, he wanted credit. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows you that he like took the reward incentive from the fawning coverage of his Kim Jong Un summits that you know we've detailed have yielded nothing really, and just wanted to play back that that tape again by getting them the Taliban, and the fact that he you know pulled out of this is really dangerous. As you said, the Taliban is going to pick up attacks in response to this. Like people will die, like because gasoline has been poured on this fire. I mean, like th just because we have a petulant president and and this is a pattern that we've seen, you know, with North Korea, he wanted to be at the center of attention. So we had head of state summit before the diplomacy was done. Now with the Taliban, he wants to be in the center of attention. And so the whole thing blows up, even though the deal was apparently done. And the, the common thread here is it's not about America. It's not about American security. It's not about the Afghan people. It's just about Trump and just mm -hmm. about the appearance that he wants to give as if it's like some New York real estate deal where he looks like a smart guy. It's the freaking Taliban. <laughs> this isn't like right. buying a skyscraper or something. And, and it's making Americans less safe. It's making the world more dangerous. Yeah. There's just no reason to have these goons at Camp David. It's just so absurd. You don't absurd. need to do um, it. It's a, it's a venue that's you know got a history of like the Camp David Accords and we hosted the, the G7 and, and the idea that you would take the kind of gold standard of, um, of an American welcome. You give a visit to Camp David to people who've kind of earned this privilege of coming to this hallowed ground just because you want to photo op with the Taliban as a part of your reelection campaign to draw down troops. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, if you want to draw down troops, do it. If you want to deal with the Taliban, do it. Just don't make it all about yourself. Camp David is staffed by a bunch of active duty members of the military. Imagine being the Marine having to serve some fucking Taliban goon his cheeseburger or something like what, what are we doing here? Yeah, just because you want to satiate the ego of the president.
It's just idiotic. All right, I, I want to talk about peace talks and, and the politics around them for a second, because there's some a long history here. <laughs> I mean, we could go all the way back to when we were actually funding the Taliban that we're now fighting in the late 70s and 80s, but we'll skip that part. But people should know that the Obama administration held secret peace negotiations with the Taliban uh, when he was president. It started, I think, in late 2010. For a while, this was like top secret, a really closely held process that started with just trying to figure out basic facts like, is the person we are talking to legit? Like, is this individual actually able to speak for the Taliban and deliver on promises? As the talks went on, each side figured out ways to test the other. They developed lists of demands. We wanted the Taliban to renounce terrorism, express support for the Afghan constitution, and give us back a a U.S. Army member named Bo Bergdahl, who'd been taken captive. The Taliban wanted back five Gitmo detainees. They wanted to open an office outside of Afghanistan uh, that they could use for negotiations. And the hope and the thinking was that if we can negotiate and deliver on these smaller things, it gives everyone more confidence in our ability to make a bigger deal. Now, ultimately, those talks under Obama blew up because he, unlike the Trump team, actually cared what the Afghans thought. Yeah. Uh, Hamid Karzai, who was then the president of Afghanistan, just blew the things up several times. He was a whole other problem, but that's a different conversation. Several later years later, in 2014, Obama ended up doing just that prisoner swap that got Bo Bergdahl home and sent these five Taliban guys from Gitmo to Qatar, where they still live under house arrest. Now, a quick aside on that that gets me to the politics. I mean, at the time of that Bergdahl swap, you were still in the White House. I was out. Everyone went ballistic. John McCain, who was in favor of a swap at one point, said that the Taliban Five were the hardest of the hardcore Taliban members and that we were putting people at risk and they're going to go back to the battlefield. Uh, You should all know that those guys are now part of the team negotiating this deal with Trump. So presumably they were going to get to go hang out at Camp David. So again, like I'm glad Trump is talking to these guys. I'm glad he has the political space to try and make a deal. But it just infuriates me that the only reason he has that space to make peace is not because Republicans decided it's in our national security interest to end the war or because the press stopped reflexively treating talking to adversaries like it's something that's weak, but because Republicans just do whatever Trump says and the press tends to parrot their national security attacks against Democrats. Yeah. And, you know, it you gave a good summary there of, of the history of talks and everybody's kind of known what the deal is on the table, which is it's some version of a Taliban commitment to not have Afghanistan be a safe haven for terrorist attacks outside of Afghanistan to cut all ties with Al Qaeda, which you know they've kind of gradually been doing. But then the sticking points became also what is the deal between the Afghan government and the Taliban you know what that's why we used to call it an Afghan led process that essentially mm-hmm. you know how can this deal be in service of both the removal of US troops but also some measure of stability in Afghanistan some measure of protection for populations like the women and girls who've made gains in the last 18 years and and again Trump seems to have you know tossed some of those concerns overboard but to your political point it totally undermines the credibility of the United States when it's so transparent that these issues are purely politicized and that people take positions clearly out of convenience. I mean, the Republicans were literally lighting them on fire of themselves on fire just because we did the swap. This is a much more robust diplomatic engagement with the Taliban, including with the guys that were released in the swap that was going to be in Camp David. And it's nowhere near the firestorm that the Bo Bergdahl thing was. And, and this is not just me saying like, oh, imagine if it was Obama and look at the hypocrisy. It's what is the message that sends to the rest of the world about the seriousness with which 
our political leaders are able to deal with these issues, that, that mm-hmm. they clearly take positions purely based on the political convenience of the day and not by actually giving a shit about what the best approach is and how to go about doing it, you know? And, and that, that to me is what's so grotesque here. And, and, and you all actually saw this in real time as this thing unraveled because the same people in the Trump administration who were prepared to bring these people to Camp David, I'm thinking of Mike Pompeo here, he then gets deployed on the Sunday shows and starts bragging about how many Taliban they've killed in the last right. week or so. Like we're back in like Vietnam. Like that matters. Yeah. Well, right. it's, it's like the body can't, the, the, uh, did we learn nothing from history? Like the only metrics that people could use for success in Vietnam were the, how many people we'd killed. Uh, you know, we, we've been killing Taliban for 18 years, has done nothing to defeat them or to eliminate the challenges in Afghanistan. But, you know, because Trump has now got a political problem because, you know, he decided to tweet about this and he blew it all up. Now we're back to boasting about killing these people. I mean, it it just makes us look fundamentally unserious. Yeah. Here's some stats about Afghanistan. It has gone on longer than World War I, World War II, and the Korean War combined. 2,400 U.S. servicemen and women have died in Afghanistan, as have approximately 1,000 NATO and coalition forces. The U.S. has spent more than $2 trillion on the conflict. And obviously, I'm just, I, I have in front of me the coalition side. There have been innumerable casualties among the Afghan security forces, civilians, just like untold suffering. And so if you want to learn more about the war in Afghanistan and the Bo Bergdahl swap and the history of peace talks, check out a book called American Cipher by a reporter named Matt Farwell. He was a guest on the show a while back, but it's a hell of a good book that walks through all the ways, you know, that controversy was politicized and and the ways Matt thinks the Obama administration screwed up. I thought it was an honest look at it. Yeah, no. And I, you know, I, I was, you know, skeptical way back when in 2009, when we did our surge in Afghanistan you know, I, I think at a certain point, like the evidence has been pretty clear here that we had a mission to carry out and you know, taking out Al Qaeda. And on the 9-11 anniversary, it's, it's worth pointing out, like we did what Americans thought we went to Afghanistan to do. Right. We, if someone told yep. you on 9-11 that uh, we were going to kill bin Laden and basically decimate Al Qaeda's leadership in that part of the world, you'd think, OK, well, that's the mission. The fact that we're still there 18 years later and that there are these people like Lindsey Graham who can constantly justify just fighting this war in perpetuity for reasons that go well beyond anything that people thought we were signing up for at the beginning. You know, it's it's time to bring this to a close. And the fact that that th- that might be in any way delayed because of Trump's ego uh, is completely outrageous. Yes, yeah, disgusting. All right, let's close the book on that one for now and talk about a very weird story about a U.S. spy in Russia. CNN broke this story this week. Uh, They reported that in 2017, the U.S. had to extract one of its highest level covert sources in the Russian government because of security risks. CNN said that that decision was driven in part by a concern that Trump and his team had mishandled classified intelligence that could expose our source to the Russian government. Obviously, that would get that person killed. This exfiltration of the spy apparently happened right after the infamous May 2017 meeting when Trump blabbed about classified intelligence to the Russian foreign minister and the ambassador to the U.S. The New York Times uh, and The Post did some follow-on reporting today, and the, the Times piece particularly contradicted some of the CNN reporting. They said that there's no public evidence that Trump directly endangered this source or was the reason that the CIA had to pull this person out. Apparently, that said that media inquiries about this source 
led to a fear about this individual's safety and the need to extract them. That kind of rings true to me. I mean, you remember at the time there yeah. was all this reporting that, you know, we knew that Putin himself had ordered the election interference. At some point, people within their intelligence services are going to try to figure out how we know that. And the Times also offered a lot more detail about this source. Apparently, the CIA uh, recruited a mid-level Russian official literally decades ago who ultimately rose through the ranks and had top-level access to Putin's inner circle. That information was so critical to the understanding of this election interference. And now it just sounds like we are flying a little blind here. So Ben, I mean, it's hard for you and I to know what's true here. Obviously, we wouldn't talk about it if we did. But two thoughts. One, like tough time to lose a good window into Putin's thinking. Two, the story is a great illustration of why agencies like the CIA sometimes freak out about protecting classified information and how challenging it is to declassify things as sensitive as the discussion around the 2016 election interference. Like, I think you and I have talked a lot about how we think there's overclassification, that sources and methods are named too much. But when you start talking about human intelligence, which is like individuals like this who are helping out the U.S. for a variety of reasons, like putting them at risk really is just unbelievably damaging. Yeah. And look, I, like you say, we don't know the, the full facts here. I think what is clear is whether it was relevant to this particular decision or not, like Donald Trump is not a careful man. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, there, there were the reports early in the administration of, that he had the meeting with the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, and, and Ambassador Kislyak, the Russian ambassador in Washington, and, and revealed some highly sensitive information that might have compromised some sources and methods. I remember being with President Obama and, and myself getting all these briefings, and oftentimes you get information that, you know, you, you can't, really describe it when you're meeting with foreign interlocutors, because if you describe something a certain way, another government might be able to kind of reverse engineer and figure out how would they know that, you know, and like, might it be a person? And and this gets to your point about human intelligence, which is the, the whole way in which we gather information from other people around the world is that those people have confidence that number one, if they come to us, they won't be burned. Right. So that they tell us something, we will protect their identities and how we use that information in ways that will keep them safe. Also, frankly, they have to believe that they're serving like a greater cause. And like a lot of people, and yeah. I'm not, again, I don't, I'm not talking about this Russian guy or, or woman, whoever it is, but like a lot of times the motivation is they believe that America is standing on the right side of things. Right. And I think Trump has put both of those things at risk. Like he's so demonstrably sloppy in how he talks about things. You know, he's been, casual classified information on Twitter even, that if you're a human source, you might be thinking like, I'm not sure I want to risk my life by sharing something with the Americans. And he's also kind of taken away that moral standing that might attract people to want to work with us as well, right? And so it, it does yep. speak to like the, their national security dimensions here to having someone who's so like temperamentally unfit to be in this position. Yes, agreed. All right. Weird story. We'll keep monitoring this one. It, it does seem like this has now become one of those open secrets where like everyone knows who this individual's name is and they're just withholding reporting on it. I certainly don't know. But man, I, I hope this like, as we know, the Russians- They've uh, killed people. They've killed people in, you know, uh, yeah. in, in, in the United Kingdom and other places. So- Yeah. And they never stop chasing these people down. Like it's a lifelong message that gets sent. So it's very scary. Let's talk about our good friends in the United Kingdom. Last week when we recorded, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson had just initiated his big Brexit play and it was just beginning to fall apart. Uh, Since then, it has gotten catastrophically worse for Boris. He has now lost two votes to force a new election. The opposition passed a law that will keep him from 
getting a no-deal Brexit. And because Johnson suspended Parliament until mid-October, which at the time seemed like an effort to prevent Parliament from blocking him and all his various machinations, he now appears to have united the opposition against himself and then drastically reduced his legislative options. So he's kind of boxed himself in. He also, you know, kicked 21 lawmakers out of his own party because they wanted to prevent a no-deal Brexit. His own brother quit the government, so it's getting a bit Shakespearean. Yeah, uh, ben, it's like kind of being written in hard news stories that this is the worst start ever for a prime minister. I don't really know the history of various prime ministers in the UK. I guess so there still is this concern that even if Boris is bumbling along, if there's a new election, they might still see a vote in support of Brexit. So I'm not sure how good to feel yet. No, I mean, what's basically happened, and and we had, you know, we set this up pretty well last week because we were talking about how you know, he might not even get this election that he wanted. But clearly what the labor is doing is trying to ensure that whatever election is held, and there's going to have to be an election at some point, that they can at least bank that there's not a no-deal Brexit on this deadline that Boris had, you know, had pointed to, which is the October 31st one. So that essentially, you know, you push the election back so that you can make sure that this legislation that passed the parliament uh, saying that they're against a no-deal Brexit can't be somehow overturned by having an election before it and then Boris trying to take them out. At the same time, to your point, like, yeah, this is a huge humiliation of Boris, huge tactical blunder by Boris, like a huge self-own by Boris. Mm -hmm. I would also point out that it's a test case in what Republicans have not done in the United States, right? There were, you know, Boris said, if you oppose me, I'm going to destroy your political career in the conservative party. I'm not even going to let you run on the conservative list going forward, which is the same thing that Republicans are afraid of, right? That I'll get primary, the Trump will tweet in support of my primary opponent. Well, you know what? There were enough people with principles in the conservative party to stand up to that and say, well, I don't care. Uh, I'm happy to like leave this party. I'm happy to suffer the, rep- the repercussions. I think it was a massive bright spotlight shining on the cowardice of Republicans to not do the same thing. In terms yep, of what happens agreed. now, though, you're right. There's going to have to be some election here to resolve this. The opposition is somewhat fractured here because the Labor Party hasn't come out forthrightly, forcefully and said, we are against Brexit. That's our position. The Liberal Democratic Party, another party in the UK, has taken that position. So there might be a situation where there's some fracturing of the opposition here, you know, and Boris is just trying to consolidate the kind of right wing forces there who do want to Brexit. So we don't necessarily know what the outcome will be. We do know that a more unified opposition under clearer leadership would probably stand a better chance here. I think that the difficulty is, right, how does this all end? They're making a no-deal Brexit like as hard as they can for, for Boris to realize unless somehow this election really swings in his, in his favor. But still, is the question then, are we going to revisit the Brexit question in totality and say, do we need a new referendum here about whether or not to leave the Euro- European Union at all? Or do we have to negotiate essentially the softest possible Brexit, the only one that could perhaps be acceptable to people when they actually look at the consequences? And there's still not answers to those questions. And that's because the original decision to leave in the first place was founded on a bunch of lies to the British people so that when they actually see what the deal is, they don't want to follow through with it. And you get this political paralysis here. And, and frankly, at least Boris Johnson is the right man to be left holding the bag. <laughs> That's right. A quick personal plug. So uh, when we were at the White House, there was a great reporter at the State Department and then covering the White House named Mark Landler, who was on the Obama beat and then did the Trump beat for a couple of years. 
Landler just parachuted into the UK to be the London bureau chief and is now covering this Boris Johnson uh, debacle. So it's really fun to watch him go from covering one shit show to the next. So follow Mark on on Twitter if you want some uh, real-time updates from someone who's as shocked by all this shit as we are. It's a great place to be like a farm policy nerd. So fun. Yeah. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. A little more good news, Ben. So when we recorded last week, I was in a very dark place about the Hong Kong protests. I said to you that I didn't think there was any chance that China would offer any concessions. And I am now very happy to say that I was wrong. So let's just wind back the clock about three months to remind everybody the context. The protests in Hong Kong started because of a bill before the legislature that would have allowed individuals, including foreigners, I might add. So anyone who just happened to fly into Hong Kong would have been subject to this law to be extradited to China and then thrown into their horrible, opaque criminal justice system that understandably terrified everyone. And so a bunch of protesters took to the street to push for this bill to be permanently withdrawn, and they haven't stopped protesting since. So last week, right after we recorded, Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, agreed to fully withdraw the extradition bill. Uh, it was a big win for the protesters. And frankly, if she had done this like two months ago, three months ago, it might have ended the protest. But now the protesters are are more dug in. Their list of demands has grown to include direct elections, which is it's hard to imagine China agreeing to. I think they all see this as, you know, their moment to push for as much freedom as they can get before it's too late. It's been interesting to watch the protests evolve over time. I noticed that protesters are now marching to the U.S. consulate and asking for the U.S. and Trump to stand with Hong Kong. I think they're specifically referring to legislation that would apply sanctions to officials in Hong Kong who are suppressing democracy and human rights. There's a bipartisan bill called the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that I imagine they're talking to. So I don't know, Ben, like it was... I was glad to see this concession. My longer term concern about how this ends is still stands, but I'm glad it's trending that way. Yeah, no, and look, we can't overestimate or overstate the scale of this victory here, right? These people in Hong Kong stood up to the most powerful authoritarian government in the world 
and they won, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, at yeah. least in the, for the time being on this specific issue that prompted the protest. That is an enormous and inspiring achievement that is due to their resilience. And, and look, let's be very clear. This is not what the Chinese government or the Hong Kong authorities wanted, right? Because they tried every other way. You know, they first they tried to defend the law. Then they tried to pull back half of it. Then they pulled it back, but said that they wouldn't take it off the table. Now they've taken it off the table. So whenever you have any politicians anywhere who are forced to continue to you know, move the goalpost in answer to public opinion, it's an achievement. When you're doing it with a, a government in Beijing that is you know, designed to not operate in response to democratic protests and public opinion, it's an even greater achievement. And, and I think, look, yeah. we l- l- across the board here, let's just take a look at, at what's happened. You've got in Brexit, you know, Boris Johnson being humiliated, trying to take them out, potentially with a no deal. In Hong Kong, you have this reversal uh, on the, the extradition law. You've got Trump like canning John Bolton because in part because of the complete incoherence of their belligerent policies. Like it has not been a good week for this kind of authoritarian nationalist trend that you and I have talked about a lot. And that's great. I mean, it just shows you yeah. that their ideas don't work and that people are willing to fight back. And that's so yeah. it's such a powerful and important message for people to be taking right now. Now, sure, the yeah. Chinese will try other approaches now going forward to squeeze them and to kind of snuff this out and to try to reestablish greater authority over Hong Kong. But, you know, uh, we also see that this is going to be a resilient mo- movement of people in Hong Kong. And so we don't know what the end of the story is. But I think we've been reminded that mass mobilization in democratic protest still has very much a place in the world of 2019 at a time when much of the talk has been about the decline of democracy. I think that's exactly right. I really hope the lesson is that even against seemingly impossible odds, protests can work. It's something we should really take to heart here in the United States. One note before we move on. Last week, I I said that protesters in Hong Kong were using liquid nitrogen to render tear gas inert. That was based on a video that was circulating on Twitter that apparently was false. So I don't know. I just figured I should correct the record. I still think these protesters are brave and innovative and impressive, but uh, that was inaccurate. So I wanted to correct it. So the Israeli, uh, speaking of pseudo authoritarians, the Israeli elections are coming up on September 17th. Didn't they just have elections, you ask? Yes, they did in April, but they needed a do-over because Bibi Netanyahu was unable to form a coalition government. So a, a reminder that Israeli elections are very different from ours. It's not a, a one-on-one race. It's this big free-for-all where like 30 plus parties compete for seats in the 120 seat Knesset. A party needs to win around 3.2% of the vote to get a seat. And then whoever can build a coalition that controls 61 of the 120 seats gets to run the government. Seems rather complicated. Uh, the two key players that people should watch are Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu and the Likud party, and then Benny Gantz from the Blue and White Party, which is a relatively new party. He's a former general. We here at Pod Save the World have been just watching with bated breath to see what last-minute nonsense Bibi Netanyahu pulls before the election, and he did not disappoint. So two things. First, uh, Netanyahu accused his opponents of trying to steal the election because the Likud party was unable to pass a bill allowing them to film inside polling stations. Like in the U.S., yeah. there is little to no evidence of voter fraud in yeah. Israel. But, you know, shoving a camera in someone's face sure can be intimidating. Yeah. Um, in last April's elections, Likud activists secretly recorded voters uh, and said they were there to prevent voter fraud. And then they later took credit for low Arab turnout. So you decide what the goal is. Second, and, and more importantly, Netanyahu gave a speech today 
where he again pledged to annex parts of the West Bank. Netanyahu said he was waiting to actually physically take control of the territory out of respect for Trump, but he's either signaling that like Trump has tacitly okayed this move, wink, wink, but overtly saying that like only I have the diplomatic chops to get Trump to to be okay with this. I saw NPR tweeted that the U.S. was informed ahead of time that Netanyahu would be announcing the annexation pledge, and they said the administration does not think that it precludes the possibility of a political settlement in the future, which is just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know, Ben. Like you know, this is another pretty big test for Trump in terms of his allies doing well in the world. It's obviously a huge test for Netanyahu. It's a big test for Israel's democracy. So this is a huge election. Well, and it's worth pointing out that one of the reasons why Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to win this election so desperately is he might go to prison if he doesn't. You know, he, he's, oh, yeah, there is he's that. under indictment. And one of the reasons <laughs> why they couldn't form a government is as like the first order of business for a new government, Netanyahu wants to pass a bill saying that you cannot indict the prime minister uh, like here in the United States, right? So he's literally running for, you know, his his personal freedom here. And and let's be clear, like as with the Republican Party here, if, if your strategy is voter suppression, if your strategy is to keep people or to intimidate people from voting uh, and then to attack anybody who's seeking to get out the vote on the other side as somehow undermining democracy, you are not a democratic leader, right? Th- this guy, like, like Trump and like a lot of these people we've talked about, you know, isn't interested in, in being in a democracy. He's interested in ruling, you know? The challenge for the Israeli center left has been, you know, the blue and white party is supposed to be this kind of coalescence of opposition to Netanyahu. Uh, Benny Gantz, who's, in, you know, the, the leader of that effort, is not a natural politician, right? You know, comes out of military background and has had trouble kind of energizing the other side of this. And so it's kind of this grinding campaign where there is a lot of fatigue with Netanyahu and there is a sense of his corruption. And at the same time, though, there's not a lot of excitement about the alternative. And Netanyahu is counting on that kind of apathy so that the other side doesn't turn out and that he can like sprinkle giveaways to the far right, like saying I'm going to annex the West Bank to get his people to turn out. And let's be clear, this gets back to your point about Republicans being hypocritical, right, for attacking us on the Taliban and then embracing Trump. Let's just like show how much Netanyahu has been completely full of shit over the years, right? This is a man who used to talk about being for a two-state solution, or who used to talk about, you know, his openness to direct talks to the Palestinians. And, and lo and behold, here we are in 2019, he's talking about annexing the West Bank, like something mm-hmm. that would formalize the fact that there is an impossibility of a Palestinian state and that Israel is going to exist as some kind of apartheid state here. This is hey, a ben, very dramatic moment. Do you ever feel like we need a better term than annexation? Isn't it like a weird euphemism? Like Putin annexed Crimea, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. he took physical yeah. control of it. Annexing the West Bank means the Israeli government just takes control of a bunch of territory and, and no questions are asked, right? Yeah, no, the language is kind of anodyne. Like settlement, too, is a fairly anodyne yeah. way of describing people taking other people's land and building on it and living there, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Crimea was conquering, I don't know, stealing. I mean, they're, they're, they're taking away land that would be envisioned as part of any Palestinian state. To be clear, there are some yeah. settlements, right, that people have long thought in a peace deal, those settlements could stay within the borders of Israel. But when you talk about the West Bank, you're talking about going deep into anything that anybody who's looked at this problem thinks would be a Palestinian state. And, you know, now I know we've got, you know, Jared's, you know, coffee boy on this thing, but uh, I'm not, you know, waiting with bated breath for the U.S. to come in and make this right. 
Yeah. Oh, we will get to Jared's Coffee Boy in one second. Um, so I, I think things to watch, like everyone has been waiting to see if Trump gives Bibi Netanyahu some big political gift before this election. I don't think it's happened yet. We'll see how he responds on annexation. There's some speculation that a former Israeli spy named Jonathan Pollard might show up in Israel one yeah. day to triumphant fan. I mean, there's also the question uh, that you raised earlier of Trump wanting to meet with Iran's president Rouhani. I yeah. imagine that Bibi will lay down on the tracks to prevent that. And if Trump goes through with it, it will be seen as a pretty big screw you to the Israelis. But I, I don't know what the, the well, likelihood Because this is what's so fundamentally contradictory. When you have somebody like Trump, you know, who's just flailing around and, and never thinking past the next move, like inevit- the longer he is president, I mean, part of what we're witnessing is the longer he is president, all of the internal contradictions of everything he says start to become apparent, you know? Yeah, good so, point. You, know, good point. You, you can't, like, because he has, there's no, there's, it's totally incoherent, right? So he doesn't want to go to war with Iran, and yet he does everything that would lead to a war, and then he's trying to find the off-ramp, and in his mind, the off-ramp has to have a meeting because he has to be at the center of attention. That's going to piss off the Israelis, so then he'll probably give the Israelis something around Jonathan Pollard showing up at a BB campaign rally and, and, yep. and endorsing the annexation of the West Bank because if he's asked about it, I can't imagine he won't do it. And, and we talk about this like a reality show drama when, my God, like think if someone told you, you know, five, 10 years ago, then Israeli prime minister would be discussing the formal annexation of the West Bank with the support of the U.S. president. Like mm-hmm. well, that is like an unbelievably new reality that we're in. And, and sometimes you got to step back in order to kind of see it. Yep. Quick plug uh, real quick. Ben and I are going to do a live Pod Save the World at J Street's 2019 National Conference on October 26th in Washington, D.C. If you go to jstreet.org slash conference and use the code PODSAVE, you can get a discounted ticket. That's jstreet.org slash conference. Use the code PODSAVE. J Street is an awesome organization. All these funds are going to go to them because they are trying to push the Democratic Party or, or everyone in politics, really, towards you know putting diplomacy first and yeah. finding peaceful resolution to problems. And it'll be a fascinating conversation and a lot of fun. So I hope a lot of people can make it. Well, I have a great idea for a guest, a guy named Avi Berkowitz. We have, if you haven't read, uh, a new White House envoy for Middle East peace on the case. It's a 29-year-old named Avi Berkowitz. He's taken the reins from the older but similarly unqualified Jason Greenblatt, whose main resume bullet was being Trump's real estate lawyer for 20 years. Most recently, Avi Berkowitz was Jared Kushner's assistant. He graduated from law school in 2016. Ben, remember when people used to shit on us because we were young? Oh, man. Yeah. That was fun. Don't get me started, man. Former White House communications director Hope Hicks once described Berkowitz's job to Business Insider as, quote, primarily administrative and involved assistant Kushner with daily logistics like getting coffee and coordinating meetings. Mm. Got it. Mm. Uh, This would be laughable if it wasn't actually an important job. I mean, per our previous discussion, I suspect the thinking here is that there's not actually going to be any meaningful peace process or negotiations. These guys may roll out some plan that gives Netanyahu kind of whatever he wants and tries to buy off the Palestinians with some financial incentives that never actually materialize and then call it a day. But, you know, I, I think Bibi Netanyahu's comments today back up that theory. But man, like, what a fucking joke. Tommy, like this guy, literally his job, right? Was to sit there and probably like order lunch for Jared Kushner and go pick it up at the mess. Or like enter in, you know, you know, Tommy and I will remember the wave system in the White House is where you have to enter in someone's personal details so they can get in to the West Wing. And then the assistant goes and meets that person, you know, at, at the front desk and escorts them up to the office. Not that like there weren't wonderful people who did those jobs, but those people didn't become the Middle East peace envoy. 
<laughs> like, yeah. like the, no. the, there are thousands of foreign service officers. Was one of them not available? Right. Like this is like a, a willful insult to anybody who cares about the fact that there should be a peace agreement between the Israelis and Palestinians or a two state solution. It is unbelievably <laughs> disrespectful to the enormity of this to just take this guy who like, you know, used to be like probably booking travel for like Jared's like getaways with Ivanka and his like off the record chats with journalists and now saying that this guy's like the Middle East peace envoy. I mean, like, we, like yeah. we didn't get it done, but like George Mitchell, the former Senate majority leader who negotiated <laughs> right. the peace agreement in Northern Ireland, that was our Middle East peace envoy, right? That was a good swing. Yeah. yeah. Like, and look where I, we I are mean, now. Like, like, you know, look, I, I'm all for trying things in a different way and not being bound <laughs> yeah. by history. But yeah. like these guys have just a disdain for history and institutional knowledge and, and actual like subject matter expertise. It's been true since Jared and Ivanka got West Wing jobs. They think they're new and young and hot shots and can fix things. And then just like having your little lackey take over a job this big just shows you just you just don't care. You have no respect for the people involved. And, uh, you know, they don't think no, it's, it's, it's what happens when you run your, your the entire United States government like you're, like a, a family business, uh, like a used car lot or something. Right. Like. Yeah. And look, uh, the other point I make here is it's also a part of their disdain for expertise. I look. I was, you know, in my mid to late thirties when I was a Cuban negotiator, and everybody said I was too young to do that, even though I'd worked for like fifteen years in foreign policy. But I'll tell you the other thing I did as soon as I got that job, I got the single best Cuba expert in the entire U.S. government, a guy named Ricardo Zuniga, a Foreign Service officer who'd been based in in Cuba for several years, worked on Latin America for more than that. He was my wingman. So I had this like reservoir of expertise with me in those negotiations. That right. is clearly not the approach that, that they take either. So they've got this guy, this essentially like Aaron boy for Jared in this role. They disdain any expertise. And, you know, here we are. Right. And the value you bring to these Cuban negotiations is they know through public reporting, intelligence, everything else, that you have a relationship with Obama yeah, and have for close a long to time. Yeah. They know that about Jared as well, too. They know that about Jason Greenblatt as well, too. This new guy is like Jared's assistant that he met playing hoops in 2011 at some fucking retreat some weekend who's now, I don't know, going to jump on a plane to Tel Aviv. It's it's a joke. Thing. Can you imagine being an Israeli or Palestinian? And no, you're a Palestinian no. who's suffering under occupation or an Israeli who desperately wants peace and, and the message that is delivered to you by this appointment, you know? Yeah, it's terrible. Let's do a couple of run updates. First, uh, the New York Times did a long, a fascinating piece on the secret history of the push to strike Iran. It is too long to summarize here, but a big question that they examine is whether Israeli threats to bomb Iran's nuclear program actually pushed Obama into making the Iran deal that the Israelis ended up hating, or if it's something he was already planning to do. Um, the other thing I noticed was reports that the IAEA has found traces of uranium at what Netanyahu called a secret atomic warehouse in Tehran. So that's a, a big question, and I don't know the truth here, but it does speak to me to why it's good to have a bunch of nuclear inspectors in there, as you yeah. had during the Iran deal. Lastly, and this one is just truly bizarre, Brian Hook, who is a senior official at the State Department, emailed the captain of an Iranian oil tanker and offered this guy millions of dollars if he would drive the tanker somewhere where the U.S. could then seize it. These emails got leaked. Brian Hook then copped to it. I am at a loss for words about how that's legal. It makes me think back to all the pallets of cash nonsense about Iran. Ben, your thoughts on any of those things? Well, on the first one, I, I think that article dramatically overstated the impact of the Israeli interest in strike. Look, everybody knew that Netanyahu was confrontational towards Iran. The reality is, 
as early as 2007 in the Democratic primary campaign, you were there with me, Tommy, Barack Obama said he wanted to pursue diplomacy with Iran to reach an agreement over its nuclear program, right? You know, mm-hmm. years before these anecdotes in the story that's allegedly compelled Obama to do a deal. Like he came into office in 2009 pursuing diplomacy with Iran. So, yes, did were we concerned about Israel potentially striking Iran and starting a war that could engulf the region? Yeah. But we also wanted to pursue diplomacy with Iran because we thought that was the best way to solve the problem of Iran getting a, nu- a nuclear weapon. And and lo and behold, here we are, and that, that continues to bear out. That's a better way than starting a war, right? On the Brian Hook thing, like, I, I, Tommy, like, imagine coming to work and firing up your computer, right? And being like, okay, I'm going to email the head of, like, the captain of some tanker and offer millions of dollars to buy, like, from some Iranian the, to buy this the State tanker? Department, the State Department head of policy planning is going to do that? You couldn't have some CIA carve out do that shit? What, what, is, what are they doing here? Why, why is anybody doing that? Just so, so that what, <laughs> they, they can say that they, like, apprehended some tanker when, in fact, what they've done is use taxpayer dollars to buy it? And like to call me started on the hypocrisy here. Like, I, I mean, we gave Iran some money. It was their money, right? They had purchased airplanes that we never delivered to them b- b- around the overthrow of the Shah for obvious reasons. And all kinds of international claims courts said this is Iran's money has to be returned. We give them this cash, and it was like a national freakout for weeks, just like the Bergdahl thing that you mentioned too, by the way, right? And lo and behold, mm-hmm. here we are, the same people, the exact same people, because Brian Hook was lighting himself on fire about that when he wasn't in government, sitting down at their computer and being like, I got a great idea. I'm going to email the Iranian captain of some tanker and be like, good news. I got millions of dollars for you that I'm just going to give you in cash. Like, I didn't know under what process, what account was that money com- coming out of? Like, I don't what, know. Th- it, it, this cries out for oversight too. Like, these crazy stories kind of pass like, literally tankers in the night and, and there's not follow-up like this gets at the utter dysfunction that they, they have so little policy tools to deal with the iranians that, that that they're resorting to trying to buy a bunch of tankers yeah when your iran policy boils down to sending like i'm a nigerian prince like spam emails to random boat captains it's probably not going well no. two more quick things here so uh robert mugabe is dead uh he ran zimbabwe for almost 40 years where he used violence to suppress political opponents and and ultimately ran the country into the ground. When I interviewed uh, the former assistant secretary of state for Africa, Johnny Carson, back in the day, he described Mugabe to me as the George Washington of Zimbabwe, uh, which sort of gets to the complicated history here. So, you know, Mugabe ran this long guerrilla war to gain Zimbabwe's independence. Before that, he was jailed for resisting white colonial rule in Rhodesia. But when he actually got into power, what ultimately brought him down was corruption and embezzlement that led to subsequent land seizures from white farmers by the government and then just general economic mismanagement. He was finally pushed out of office in 2017 in a military coup. Unfortunately, you know, he was pushed out, but the repressive authoritarian political system has continued. So, Ben, I should know if you had any uh, farewell parting thoughts for Mr. Mugabe. Well, look, I mean, you know, he, as you point out, he's this guy who was part of the liberation struggle that led to Zimbabwe's independence but man, if ever there was a man who frittered away his legacy, because you know it wasn't just the land seizures from white farmers; it, it was you know the mass repression of any opposition in that country, people in prison, yes, right. absolutely violence against people. Like this guy became one of the worst autocratic leaders 
in not just Africa, but around the world and, you know, squandered uh, essentially, you know, Zimbabwe's position as one of the stronger economies uh, in Africa and as a potential exemplar for the kind of post-liberation Africa. So, you know, no warm feelings here. I mean, this guy, you know, had, had long since squandered what had been a good legacy. Uh, and frankly, I think he's a cautionary tale, right? That if Mandela was the exemplar of someone who recognized that the best way to be a George Washington is not just to lead your country to independence, but then to hand over power to somebody else, right? One of the problems that's happened in a lot of uh, countries, including in Africa, are leaders who act like they're indispensable and refuse to leave power and people who once fought for democracy end up undermining it, right? And so I think he's kind of the anti-Mandela, whereas Mandela represents that commitment to not just independence, but democracy. You know, Mugabe is the guy who represents, you know, independence in service of my own agenda, which is not democratic. Yeah. All right. Last topic. So, you know, as again, we mentioned at the top, this is going to go out on the 18th anniversary of 9-11. So I did want to take a second just to reflect on that anniversary for a minute. I mean, Ben, I, I know you were in New York City at the time. I was like, safely in rural Ohio. But, you know, my dad worked at Marsh McLennan at that time. So like, you know, I think I was pretty freaked out for a while. I think we all have a lot of reasons why that day will have a a horrific place in our memories forever. Um, And we should never forget the people we lost, how vulnerable and frightened we felt, how many ways we all, you know, as a country could have prevented 9-11 from happening. But I also think it's valuable to take stock of and have a reckoning with all the ways that 9-11 and fear of terrorism have distorted our our foreign policy thinking and decision-making and resource allocation and our politics generally over the last almost two decades. So I know this is something that you've worked on a lot, thought about a lot, read a lot. So I just wanted to turn the floor over and see if you had anything you want to add. Yeah, no, look, I was a 24-year-old grad student on 9-11 handing out flyers. It was election day in New York. I was at a polling site with this kind of totally clear view of the World Trade Center. And so I saw the second plane hit because we were all staring at the one tower on fire and I saw the second plane hit. So then you know you're under attack. Cell service was down in New York. So no one had any idea what was going on because a lot of the cell towers ran through the World Trade Center. And then I saw that first tower fall. And I'm a New Yorker and I knew a bunch of people who worked down there. I had no idea how many people have been killed. And I just remember thinking that my whole entire life was going to change. I mean, I was, you know, as is notoriously commented by some of my fans in the Republican Party, I was in creative writing graduate school. I was getting a fiction writing degree, working a political campaign, and I was teaching. And and I just decided that day, like, I want to be a part of whatever happens after this. Led me down to D.C., end up working for the guy who's the co-chair of the 9-11 Commission. So then, you know, got to kind of see firsthand this autopsy of the events that led up to 9-11 and the recommendations about what to do about it. And and then being in foreign policy, I I just wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you with the career I've had if it weren't for this event. Along the way, I met family members, a lot of family members of people who lost loved ones on 9-11. I had to, one of the things I had to do is kind of be a liaison to some of them through that process. Some extraordinary people uh, who tried to channel their grief into to reforming the government. But then I think you raise another really important point here, Tommy, which is we have to reckon with the fact that we got some things terribly wrong after 9-11. You know, we got mm-hmm. some things right, like, you know, and obviously the counterterrorism community that you and I got to meet, you know, prevents attacks, saves lives. But, you know, we tortured people. We opened up this prison in Guantanamo Bay that is a symbol for extrajudicial action by the U.S. that is still open. We invaded the country of Iraq under 
false pretenses for reasons that seem to have nothing to do with 9-11 in response to 9-11. And we had this politics emerge in the United States that increasingly stigmatized Muslims. It's, it's striking to me that here we are 18 years after 9-11, and frankly, it, it, there's more aggressive re- political rhetoric, including from the President of the United States, again, demonizing Muslims than there was in the days after 9-11 when George Bush visited a mosque, right? So something right. Went, went badly wrong here in our actions and our prioritization and just the way in which I think we've learned that being at war for two decades can have profound unintended consequences and effects on a country's foreign policy and its own character because mm-hmm. th- there's just something about the kind of, you know, there were some very noble things that came out of 9-11 in terms of the country coming together, but there was also this kind of jingoism that has gotten uglier and uglier with time. And I hope, you know, maybe with Trump's presidency and, and staring that in the face with the Muslim ban and some of his other policies, we can take this opportunity to say, you know, we need to figure out a way to start a new chapter. And one of the ways perhaps yeah. to honor the memory of 9-11 is say, we don't need to be in a permanent war because of 9-11. We don't need to live in permanent fear because of 9-11. We certainly don't need to turn against each other because of 9-11, right? And so I hope in this campaign and if we can overcome Trump and have a new presidency, there's some opportunity to say, okay, like we're ending this period and moving into a new one. Agreed. Well said. When we leave it there and when we come back, we'll have my interview with Senator Michael Bennett. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop I am thrilled to be joined by presidential candidate and Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, who recently published a new book titled Dividing America, How Russia Hacks Social Media and Democracy. Senator, thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks, Tommy, for having me. I especially appreciate it because I believe you are coming directly from a dental visit, so presumably half your face is numb. I actually uh, started my day having a root canal, a partial root canal. It, It turns out that I'm going to have to go back in a month for the rest of the root canal, which makes it even better. But you know you're not living your life well when that hour feels like a vacation. 
I was going to say, your life is kind of an ongoing root canal with this exactly. presidential primary. It, felt pretty, it actually was fun to get away. Yeah. <laughs> that is sad. Um, I want to talk about the book, but I was hoping we could start yeah. with some of the wild news today. Trump just fired his national security advisor, John Bolton, via tweet. I'm, Wait, I thought he quit. Uh, yeah, right. I'm sorry. Sorry, John. Uh, if you're listening, I know you listen all the time. Curious what you think about this decision and specifically, you know, if you think or hope what it might mean. Uh, that a course correction for U.S. relations with Iran. Well, I, I would say for America's sake, I'm really glad John Bolton is out of there. Yeah, me too. Um, and uh, I can't speak to why they, you know, what disagreement it was they had, but I think the guy is a menace and was another one of these people that Trump liked from watching Fox News. But I think the more significant point is that there have been more national security advisors than there have been years of the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the reason why these guys have absolutely no strategy or or doctrine except take really difficult situations and make matters worse, mm-hmm. which seems to be their approach to the world, whether it's China, Russia, Iran, or anything else. Yeah, that sounds right to me. You're also on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, so you oversee uh, a lot of the activities that Mr. Bolton would have been steering. There have been a bunch of reports the last couple of days about uh, the CIA pulling a source out of Russia, some sort of asset that we had uh, worked on over time. I know you can never confirm or deny a story like that, but do you have broader concerns about the United States' ability to recruit and then protect human intelligence sources? I certainly have those broader concerns because people, you know, don't understand what the risks are going to be any given day, given what comes out of the White House. But I obviously can't speak to anything related to the Intelligence Committee, except to say that it is a comfort to me that the men and women of our intelligence agencies are, are continuing to do their jobs, even when we have a president who won't admit that Vladimir Putin hacked our elections mm-hmm. in 2016. I mean, who'll stand next to Putin in Helsinki and deny what our own intelligence agencies have found and concluded. They've continued to do their work every day. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And obviously that doesn't substitute for having a president who's behaving himself on this stuff, but it is it is somewhat of a comfort. Yeah. Uh, last quick uh, newsy of the day one before I get to the book. Inviting the Taliban to hang out at Camp David right before the 18th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Good idea or great idea? <laughs> Probably, I'd, I'll bet it's not the worst idea Donald Trump had in the last uh, week. That's um, probably true. But uh, probably not a great idea. And, and it looks ridiculous because it now appears that he was doing it just to sort of give himself credit for reaching a deal that the parties were really far apart from reaching. You know, I think we need a political solution in Afghanistan. There's not a military solution there. I think people realize that. But spooling everybody up for a deal that's not done yet is not helpful in Afghanistan and it hasn't been helpful in North Korea, but it's not surprising at this yeah. point that the guys looks for a stage every chance he yeah. has. So you, you just published this book, Dividing America, How Russia Hacks Social Media and Democracy. The book includes a bunch of examples of Russian social media propaganda that are pretty jarring. Why did you decide to write the book and why did you want to focus on showing you know, what the Russians are pushed? What should we learn from this book? Well, I think that the reason I did it was that I kept hearing people say, Mueller's, you know, terrible, Mueller's good. And nobody seemed to actually focus on the underlying substance of what 
Mueller's indictment showed, you know, Mueller ended up indicting a bunch of Russians for hacking into our elections and for, for using social media to push their propaganda. And what I was discovering as I traveled around the country was nobody seemed to really understand it or know what it looked like. And I was struck walking out of a, a senior citizen's center in, in Manchester when a guy said to me, just tell Obama, this was you know several months ago, just tell Obama to stop spending the money that should be for veterans on refugees. What? And what I knew was that was Russian propaganda, you know, because if you look in the book, there's a page where you see a picture of President Obama and the assertion is being made that he's spending money on refugees instead of on veterans. And here it is. I mean, obviously, President Obama has been gone for two years, but it's still, you know, this propaganda has made its mark. And when you consider the fact that it is really racist and really vile, a lot of the stuff that's in there, and that we were hacked by the Russians for a year before we even knew that this was Russian propaganda. In other words, we couldn't distinguish between their racist Russian propaganda from our own political discourse. Mm -hmm. It raises a question in my mind about our political discourse and what does it say about us that our you know, adversaries see our diversity and our pluralism as a weakness to attack rather than the strength that I believe that it is. So that's why I wanted people to see it. And, and as you look at the book, you'll see that the Russians don't care what side of the issue they're on. They're on, you know, one one minute they're supporting Black Lives Matter, and the next minute they're, you know, they're attacking Black Lives Matter and um, putting patriotic things down about the police. Yeah, they're they're on the side of chaos. It seems chaos exactly. You know, it, it's in, it's an interesting conversation because we're also focused on these propaganda efforts now. But you know, they're hardly new. I mean, I've been reading this great book about. Uh, some of the work the CIA did back in the 50s and 60s to try to create a cultural propaganda campaign to showcase American values abroad. And and the flavor of it was certainly different. Like the Boston Symphony Orchestra became really famous because they had a CIA-sponsored trip to Paris that went really well. So there's a little fun piece of history. But like, you know, if you're on the border uh, of Russia, for example, you've been dealing with Russian propaganda and election interference forever. Absolutely. It's just supercharged by the internet, right? So are yep. there countries that have learned key lessons and develop antibodies that we should study and learn from? I actually think there there really aren't. There's a deep concern about it, as you know, all over uh, Western Europe the and, and the rest of Europe, for that matter, the democracies that are suffering through the effects of Russia um, screwing around on their social media and, and supporting um, right-wing extremist groups. There's deep concern, and I think there's real concern that they can't push back effectively without the United States leading the charge. I have heard that there are now countries on the eastern edge of Russia that have television programs in the evening that are dedicated. Mm -hmm. They're news programs that are dedicated to debunking the Russian lies that have been posted during the course of the day. And I have never done the research on that myself, but that seems like something that would be an effective way of pushing back. We could use something like that here, yeah. not just with respect to the Russians, but lies in general. Yeah, so I know that uh, you are very kindly uh, sending copies of the book to Senator Mitch McConnell to help pressure him to act. I thought it would be helpful to yeah, him. Yeah, that's really sweet of you. I mean, he's a he's an avid reader, I think, mostly of um, you know financial statements from his donors. But what legislation 
do we need to pass? What sort of things are in a bill that you think would be meaningful? First of all, the reason why, I'm, and people can go to michaelbennett.com or russiahackedourdemocracy.com, and if they want to, they can make a very modest contribution. I'll send a copy of the book to Mitch for them, because what I'm trying to do is push him to put the election protection legislation on the floor. We've had eight different bills that he stopped, eight different times that are some of which are bipartisan. And the kinds of things that we're talking about is investing $1.5 billion to harden local election panels and counties so that the Russians can't hack them. And you can think about, in particular, rural counties, but but really every place. I mean, these places aren't in a position to stand up to the Russians' internet espionage. And so we got to work together to do that. There's other legislation that would say that if a, if a campaign is contacted by the Russians in, in the way that it's happened during the 2016 campaign, that they need to relay that to law enforcement, to the FBI. I would love to see, Tommy, what United States senator there is who would want to vote against that legislation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems unimaginable. It sure does. And I can tell you that it's not because we're passing background checks here. Yeah. Like, we're not doing anything. It's just every day. It's judges, judges, judges. How did you snag RussiaHackedOurDemocracy.com? You're sitting on a gold mine with that thing. I got I to gotta figure out how to monetize it. <laughs> so, so, I mean, as we talk about this, right, like you're kind of referencing not just a foreign policy challenge or a security challenge, but parts of our democracy and our discourse that are broken, right? I mean, we have... We have yeah. social media platforms where these messages can just run wild. I mean, is this challenge manageable with with things as they are? Well, you mentioned the time you were you're talking about the history of our propaganda efforts and and taking the was it the Boston Symphony mm-hmm. to to Paris? You know, you, you think about a period of time when we were really the dominant power and uh, and there's very much the American century and now we're at a moment where I think our democracy is really at risk we were very careless with our democracy and we ended up getting Donald Trump elected as a result the fact that the Russians saw it as an opportunity to try to push and the Chinese are seeing it now as an opportunity to push worries me as well I think this is a moment when we have to stand up for the democracy and who is in the office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is a very important question for us to resolve because that obviously matters but I think what matters equally is what we as citizens you know how we think about the responsibility that we need to fulfill here uh, when it comes to our discourse, when it comes to you know what we think about the trades that we've made with social media around privacy or around you know the ability for white supremacists to be able to occupy uh, corners, not even corners, but the main street of our political discourse in ways that's been really destructive to the country and I think is setting a poor example for the next generation of Americans about how you actually run a democracy. Mm-hmm. I, what that leads me to conclude is that all of us, you know, that the cure is actually in what we do as individuals to come together, not to agree about everything with each other. I mean, that's not the point of living in a free society like ours, but to work together on some level to leave something that we're proud of to our kids and, and to restore America's place in the world. I think there is no democracy in the world that can champion democracy the way we can champion democracy. We've been here longer than anybody else. We're the most powerful, and the rest of the world is looking to us for leadership. And unfortunately, right now, we are supplying none no, of it. We are not. 
So you mentioned North Korea earlier. I was hoping to ask you a, a slightly convoluted question about North Korea, if you don't mind. I'm sure your question will be no more convoluted than my answer. So, <laughs> so I, I think if you step back, like any objective look at Trump's diplomacy with North Korea shows that it has been just a failure, right? The New York Times the other day reported that the Defense Intelligence Agency thinks that North Koreans have created enough nuclear material for a dozen new bombs since the Singapore summit. They also reported that Kim is testing new missiles all the time because he wants to evade our missile defenses. We seem divided from our allies in the region like Japan and South Korea. So my question for you is, I'm a progressive, right? I I want to incentivize diplomacy. I want leaders to talk as a way to solve problems and not invade places. But how do we be honest that this diplomacy has been a failure and it's making us less safe while not incentivizing our lunatic president to go back to fire and fury? Well, look, I think that being progressive and being for engaging people smartly is the right thing to do. But making these suckers bets all over the world is idiotic. And we look like clowns, Um, whether it's when, you know, the the second he gets any pushback on Huawei, he sort of crumbles on that before we actually have run that to the ground. That's the Chinese, not the North Koreans. But on North Korea, you know, the promises that Kim made that uh, his father made, 20 years ago, they're this exactly the same promises, and Trump, you know, claims, I mean, the history of this, as you know better than anybody else, but I mean, the history of this starts with Barack Obama and Donald Trump sitting in the Oval Office, and Barack Obama very kindly turning over the keys and saying, the thing that is worrying me the most here is North Korea, and that's what we've got to really focus on. Trump goes over there, Kim says the same thing that his dad said, and that they've said for years, and Trump claims there's a victory, gets on the airplane and tweets out, everybody can sleep mm-hmm. well at yeah. night. And the intelligence agencies have all said what you just said, which is that you can't sleep well at night because matters have gotten worse. And not only have they gotten worse, we have separated ourselves from our allies, like the South Koreans and like the Japanese and other people in the world. So, you know, this idea that it's okay to have a president who spends all of his time coddling our enemies and pulling the rug out from under our allies, that somehow that that reflects an interesting form of rejection of political correctness, which is what the way I think some people see this. I think our answer to that needs to be, these are real dangers and real perils in the world, and there is no one else to lead us. And by the way, we may survive this for four years, but over an eight-year period, these the strategic relationships that we need to drive successful diplomacy, whether it's Iran or Russia or or North Korea, eight years of a Trump presidency might mean that that stuff is all atrophied mm-hmm. to the point where it can't be collected yeah. again. Yeah, NATO, and that China will fill the void as they're trying to do. You know, while we spend, and again, this isn't just on foreign policy, but it's just. I find it interesting to think about seven or ten months or two years consumed with Trump's $6 billion for his rinky-dink wall that was supposed to be paid for by Mexico. China is building 3,500 miles of fiber optic cable to connect Latin America with Africa back to the surveillance state of China so they can export that surveillance state use the metadata they're collecting to drive their influence everywhere in the world. It's not like, you know, the fact that we are all sucked into the cable television vortex at night doesn't mean the Chinese are, and they're using this time to press their advantage all over the world. I agree. So, okay, so you get elected president. 
you go and uh, bring your protege John Bolton back to the White House. If you're not just kidding, everybody. So you're elected president. <laughs> I mean, do you do you rein back on this North Korea diplomacy? Do you go back to the Iran deal? Like, how do you think about it? I think on North Korea, you rein it back in the sense that you don't give Kim the stage the way that Trump has. You don't elevate him the way that Trump has. You don't show up in the DMZ with your hat in the hand the way that Trump has. I think you reset those expectations and get people at a responsible level at the State Department and other places to see if there's anything there, you mm-hmm. know, and we've got a clear set of priorities that Republican and Democratic presidents have embraced to this point to try to advance, to, to try to make North Korea less of a threat to the rest of the world, and I think we could pursue those. On Iran, I think this has been a complete, I mean, obviously I'm not objective about it, but I think objectively a catastrophe for this country. I mean, the, the Iran deal in my mind, represented a singular moment in our history in the Middle East to try to deal with the problem in a manner other than just to go to war with it. And I never thought the deal was perfect when I voted for it. I didn't think it was perfect. I worried about its duration. I worried about its scope. But it seemed to me that it was obviously better than not having that deal. And then when Trump became president, the things that I didn't know when I voted for it uh, were now known facts, and the most important known facts were that the Iranians had complied with the deal, and they were now a year away from breaking out to a nuclear we- weapon instead of just two to three months, which they were when Barack Obama began to negotiate that deal. And as you know, the difference between two and three months and a year is the difference between not being able to consult meaningfully with your allies to decide what to do next versus having to act unilaterally in a way that might create endless misery for everybody, including Americans. So I think it was a huge mistake for him to do it. And if I were president, what I would do is re-engage the Iranians and try to improve the deal. And people shouldn't be shocked. The Iranians are going to try to improve the deal for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, they got screwed. I mean, you know, they were promised a whole bunch of sanctions relief that never showed up. So I, I worry that the hope to improve the deal is going to be harder than everybody thinks, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Well, it was hard to do the last time, too. I mean, you know, the, mm-hmm. the folks that said, well, we should have included rockets or we should have included whatever. I mean, I'm for all that stuff, yeah. too. The Iranians are just going to want to make it a trade as well, yeah. and people should just be aware of yes. that. But there might be opportunity in that, too. And and I also think the opportunity for us to restore our relationship with our allies in the region who we've deeply disappointed and in Europe because of you know our pulling out of that deal is an important reason for us to try to get back into the bargaining I, my starting place though would not be just to go back to it as you know the deal as it was that makes me a little sad but I'm just going to move on uh, well I, I don't want to hurt I don't want to pander well look you know that's fair. I have two quick questions to conclude, if you don't mind. Then I'll let you like go back to the uh, smoothie dinner or whatever after post. Uh, exactly. Um, so today, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu gave a speech where he again talked about annexing the West Bank. The speech seemed to suggest that if he doesn't have tacit approval from the Trump administration to do this and just start taking this territory, he thinks he can get it through negotiations. If that happens, do you think we need to have a conversation about conditioning aid to Israel or taking other punitive steps? Well, I I, I saw the stuff today, and I think that it is enormously unsettling that the prime minister seems to be saying, 
that he wants to do this while the you know quote window is open or whatever the language was that that he used and obviously for any of us that think that the solution here lies in a, in a two-state solution negotiated by the parties led and supported by the United States of America this isn't the kind of behavior that that's helpful to any of that i don't want to speculate about what the right action is to take down the road but i do think this is utterly inconsistent with our values and the positions of Democratic and Republican presidents uh, with respect to Israel and the Palestinians, basically forever. Last question. So the last time I saw you was at the Iowa State Fair. We were walking around. I think you were planning what rides to hit with your family. Did you guys ever, did you guys go on the roller coaster? What'd you end up doing? That's not the question. We did. We went on, I think we went on a roller coaster. I was photographed on a thing called the airplane where I was in the middle of two of my daughters lying flat on my stomach with my arms straight out and it and the photograph in the paper won us the most fun farm political nice. family i think nice. of the weekend so it was at least worth something that's great well it was lovely getting to meet uh, your daughters and your wife no, thank you it didn't improve my position in the polls but i'm still working on that there's time well so okay so i, I spent a couple of days in iowa you spent a lot more time in there the conversations i had focused on trump electability and to the extent i talked about policy with people or heard about it. It was domestic issues. I think that's yeah. not surprising, but it is a bit frustrating when you think about how much latitude a president has when it comes to foreign policy as opposed to like getting stuff through Congress, right? So are there national security issues that you wish were getting more attention in TV interviews and debates that just aren't? Well, I think the opportunity cost of having Trump as our president with respect to foreign policy needs to be much made much more clear to the American people. And then, we, you know, the conversation you and I had, for example, about North Korea, we could have about Russia, we could have about China. And that's, that burden is on the Democrats. And we need to make that we need to make that case. I think there's a very fertile case to be made that he's done an unbelievable amount of damage, not just to our economy, but to our alliances around the world. One thing you might be heartened to hear based on the you know, my travels in Iowa and New Hampshire is that in almost every town hall I have, somebody puts up their hand and says, you're right, it's mostly domestic issues, but in almost every town hall, somebody puts up their hand and says, what are you going to do to restore our alliances? So I think that is very much on the minds of of the American people, and that's good. Yeah, that is good. The book is Dividing America, How Russia Hacks Social Media and Democracy. Senator, thank you so much for doing the show. You have always been one of the most thoughtful and, and helpful people in the U.S. Senate during our time in the Obama administration. And I thought your conversation with Dan Pfeiffer in our candidate series was one of the most uh, riveting of them all. So thank you for doing it, and everybody should check that out. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me come on. We miss you guys. That's all I can say. Oh, miss us? Oh, well, the Obama people, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we do. Well, yeah, yeah. that was uh, better times. Anyway, thank you, Senator. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tommy. Ben, thanks again for joining at a late hour from D.C. That was, you know, I wish John Bolton could quit every day. That was a lot. I could have talked about John Bolton for an hour. <laughs> I could, too. Maybe we'll just re-up and do it again next week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, there's going to be a bunch of reporting about that, wax. that doofus. Well, uh, have fun at dinner with him tonight, and I will see <laughs> yeah. you soon. All right, see you, man. <laughs> Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. 